3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, no, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And that's the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks for it. Lord, we are thankful for this section of your book that we are going to study together today and next week. Thank you so much for the clarity that it gives regarding our salvation in Christ Jesus. What you have done and what you overcame in us, we praise your name for the gift that you give us in your Son. Help us. Help us, Lord, to appreciate it more as a result of our time in the, in the Word. And, and Lord, if there's someone that doesn't know you, they, they maybe have been trusting in religion, some kind of doing of good deeds or good works or keeping the law, whatever, that it would become clear to them that that is never going to be sufficient to establish a right relationship with you. And do your will. Do what you know needs to be done in each of our hearts to the glory of your name. And we pray this all in Jesus' great name. Amen. So you can see the insert that I gave you, the title of of this section really is Justification, How I Get God's Righteousness. And you'll see that it says Romans 3, 21 through uh, uh, 51. It should be 31, uh, my mistake. But actually it should be 321 through 521 because it's the second major section of the book. But let me, let me begin uh, this way. Imagine with me that uh, you and I are, are, are going to take a, a survey of people living here in Anchorage, and there's only one question that we're going to ask those people that we encounter, and that question is, what is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? Now, let me think through what some of the replies might be to that kind of a question. Ask them. If, if we were to speak to some homeless people, let's say, that are on the street corner or that you encounter, and we ask, what's your greatest need? Their response might be, yeah, might be, I need a drink. You know, if they're being honest, I need a drink. And others might say, yeah, I need shelter for the night, or I need some food, that kind of thing. 
others might uh, that we talked to might uh, tell us that their their greatest need is gas for their car. <laughs> That's becoming more of a need in in our economy with the the price of gas going up. It's like I just don't have enough gas to get through the week. Others might uh, be saying, "Well, you know what I really need is a vacation, a vacation, get away from it all." It's likely that if we were to ask that, some people might say, I need a spouse. I need a husband or I need a wife. Um, I'm sure we would hear some people say that their greatest need is to have a job, although it seems like more and more people don't really want to work. They need a paycheck is what they might be saying. Even though they say I need a job, what they really mean is I need a paycheck uh, to support the way I live. So we might find some people that would actually say, well, I don't have any really great needs. I mean, all my needs are, seem to be met. Well, there would probably be very few who would understand what their greatest need really is, is what I'm suggesting. People, for the most part, live with the problem of nearsightedness. And I don't mean physical or actual nearsightedness. I mean spiritual nearsightedness. People tend to focus mostly on their immediate longings or what they might say their immediate needs rather than their more, most crucial need. So I want to think through needs or longings kind of in three categories. Um, this the breakdown of this really came out of a, a book that I read many years ago, but it, it does sum it up quite well. Uh, first is a category of casual longings, casual needs, referring to the longings of convenience and comfort and personal preference, such things as, as having food on my table or shelter over my head or clothes to wear, or where's the cheapest gas, or can I stop and get a cup of coffee on the way to work, or, you know, it could be any, any such thing like that, just casual longings. That's where most people's attention is focused. Second category is uh, called critical longings. And, and by that is meant longing for, and we all, we all have this longing, longing for deep human relationships, connecting with people at a love level. I, there's a beautiful commercial that I've seen on, on uh, TV uh, recently. It shows a number of people, uh, it could be a, a couple, a man and a woman, it could be a, a mom with a child, or uh, any number of uh, grouping, there's like 10 or so that are in this commercial, but basically the idea of the commercial is we all need to feel loved. We all need love. And that's what this critical longing is, is the need for deep human relationships and, and knowing that my life is going to have some impact it's important. It's significant. Every, every person desires to know that they are loved and that their life is important to other people. Yeah? Yeah. I think we could recognize that. The third category is that of crucial longings. Crucial longings. Referring to the need of a restored relationship with the Creator God. A restored relationship with the God of all things. Not all will acknowledge such a need, right? Some people say there is no God. I don't have that need. Others, you know, say, well, they, they don't, 
th have time to think about that stuff. They're too focused on their casual longings or their critical longings to be thinking about that. They don't even give it consideration. But the truth is, this need is built within every person because we are all created in the image of God and we're connected to him in that way. Ecclesiastes puts it in the, in the idea of that God has created every person with a vacuum that can only be filled by him. So we see this most crucial of needs identified throughout the scripture. I'm going to give you a few examples of it. Uh, it, it it's spoken of in Job 9.2. I've just finished reading through the book, book of Job as I'm reading through the scriptures. And you probably are familiar with the dialogue between Job and his three friend counselors that end up not really being such good friend counselors. But anyway, it's going back and forth, and Job is responding to them, and as it goes on, Job's getting a little more hmm, angry at God. He's going to make sure God understands why what he's done you know, is not quite right with Job. It might be with other people. But anyway, in Job 9.2, we read this question asked. But how can a man be right before God? How can a man be right before God? In the New Testament, in Acts 2, Peter preaches a real scorcher of a message, the first gospel message uh, preached uh, when the church was born on the day of Pentecost. And in verse 37, at the, after he's finished preaching, those that were in the crowd says they were cut to the heart like they were pierced by a sword or a spear. And they cry out, brothers, what shall we do? And the idea is, what shall we do to be right with God? And then Peter, of course, tells them, well, repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts 16, we find Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi. And while they're there, God, they're, they're praising God. They're having a worship service in jail, which is probably a good idea, you know, example of like why worship services be taking place in jail ministry today. But anyway, that's happening. And God sends an earthquake, and the jail was so shaken, and, and all the, the gates were opened up by a result of the earthquake, so much so that the, the guard thought that all the prisoners had probably escaped, and so he's, he grabs his sword, and he's going to take his own life, as would be required for those who had responsibility over prisoners like that, and Paul stops him, and the jailer asks a question of Paul and Silas, and his question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? In Luke 10, a certain lawyer came to Jesus and asked essentially the same question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Micah, the prophet, going back to the Old Testament, wondered what it would take to be right with God. This is how he put the question, questions, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's asking the same question. What must be done 
to be right with God? And the most crucial question that any of us and all of us, each one of us, can ask is what can I do to be right with God? How can I be right with God? And it is essentially that question that Paul is actually answering in the letter to the Romans. The whole book is answering that question. Now, to this point in the epistle, as we know, if you've been here, you know this, that Paul has done a a masterful job of explaining why people need the righteousness of God. That's chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. The reason they need... God's righteousness or uh, a right relationship with God is because they don't have it. <laughs> because they are sinners, everyone. Whether pagan, idolater, unbelieving, atheist, to self-righteous, very religious people, to anyone in between. They're all sinners, is what he has shown. They are all sinners, and they are under the condemnation of God, and they will receive his wrath. He's shown that everyone stands guilty before God as a sinner. They're condemned before him. They deserve his wrath. Tom was, Pastor Tom was talking about what is deserved and grace, which is not deserved. Wrath is deserved by every person born into this world, is what Paul has said in in that first major section. But in this second major section, which starts in verse 21, where we read today, Paul will thoroughly explain the doctrine of justification. 118 through uh, 320 was condemnation. That doctrine, now we are to the doctrine of justification. He desires people to understand how they may receive the righteousness of God, how they can have a right relationship with God. And what he's going to show is that only by being declared righteous through faith in Christ can one escape the, the, the holy wrath of God, which they do deserve as a sinner. Now, he's going to do four things from 321 through 521, this whole section. First, he reveals that Jesus Christ is the only sufficient sacrifice, atoning sacrifice, that satisfies God's judicial wrath, and that by faith in Christ, a person or people may receive the righteousness of God as a free gift. That's what we just read, 321 through 31. The second thing he does is he uses Abraham as an example to show that this gift comes through faith and not by works. Now, it says that also in 321 through 31, but he's taking a whole chapter, chapter 4, and using Abraham as the example to, to demonstrate in detail why it can't be by works of the law, but must be by faith that we come into a right relationship with God. Third, he will list some of the wonderful benefits or results of justification by faith. That's chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And God has done all of this. He fills our heart with hope, a hope that doesn't disappoint. We have a standing in God's grace, etc., etc. Just wonderful benefits. And then fourth, he makes a comparison between Adam and Jesus uh, 
Adam brought sin and death to all people through his one act of disobedience in the garden, right? Through his one act of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he brought sin and death to all people. While Jesus Christ, through his one act of obedience, Paul will say, brings eternal life to all those who will believe. So that's chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Well, hopefully that's kind of clear where we're going. Not going there all today. Uh, 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 uh. But it's good to get it out on the table, right? Seeing where we've been, condemnation to everyone, because everyone is a sinner. Now, justification for everyone who believe. So, in the first ten verses of this second major section of the letter, Paul explains in detail the nature of justification, how a person gains a right relationship with God. I mean, this is, this is probably the most theological ten verses you will encounter in the scriptures. Big words are in here. Justification, redemption, propitiation. Man, I mean, it's just loaded. And we're going to try to cover it in two weeks. We'll see if that is a, a miracle that God will give us. But uh, in these 10 verses, he, he's going to identify, I'm going to say there's four. There's a whole bunch of things, but I'm going to list four of the things with respect to justification. Now, and, and, and so on your sermon insert, you have A, B, C, D with just the word justification. In a moment, I'll get to, to those. So you don't want to write down necessarily what I'm going to give you right now. It'll come out in, in just a, l- a little bit. But in the... In these verses, the first thing he will do is demonstrate that justification is not by works of the law. Justification is not by works of the law. Second, he will show the means of justification, which is faith. Third, he will show the source of justification, which is the grace of God. And fourth, he will reveal the basis of justification, which is the blood of God. Of Christ, So that's what we're going to see in these verses. Not Again, not all today, but that's what we'll see. Now, these particular ten verses have been referred to as the very center of the gospel message. One commentator by the name of Alva McLean suggests that if he had just a few verses of scripture and all, all the rest were taken away, he could keep a section but take away all the rest, he would select these ten verses, this section. And he writes that of all of God's gospel, it's here, it's here, and in a way found where it's nowhere else found in the word of God. Commentator Leon Morris writes it in a little bit more detail. He, he, he writes, in what is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written, Paul brings out something of the grandeur of Christ's saving work. He speaks of the righteousness of God, the sin of man, and the salvation of Christ. And he views this salvation in three ways. As justification, which is imagery from the court. As redemption, which is imagery from the slave market. And as propitiation, imagery from the averting of wrath. That's a pretty good summary of this passage. Now, one other thing before we kind of get these justification statements I want you to understand is 
to know that the words righteousness, righteous, right, uh, and justification or just, justifier, these all come from the same Greek word. The root of that word is dike, D-I-K-E. We'd write it as dike. But it, it, it has all kinds of different forms. Dikasune, dikaiao, and it's like it's, it's a long list of uh, forms of this, but it's all the same root word. So if you read righteousness and you read justification, you're actually the same word, even though it looks so different in the English, right? So that these words are the clear theme of these 10 verses is seen by how many times these words are found in these 10 verses in its varied forms, nouns and adjectives and verbal forms, nine times in these 10 verses. So let's just look at it one more time, this section, and we'll spot these words, okay? Just so that you see this is the theme, righteousness or justification. So verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And then you skip down to verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. Down to 24, and and are justified by his grace as a gift. Skip to 20, um, the uh, middle or end of 25. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith. And then in verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. <laughs> this is a lot of repetition of that Greek word, isn't it? And it comes out in, in different English words, but it's all one basic word. Now, we've already identified in previous sermons in, in Romans that the, we're saying that the meaning of righteousness is kind of two, twofold. Firstly, it, righteousness, like in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the theme of the, the letter. We're, we're talking about how, how to have a right relationship with God. So righteousness in the context of the gospel like that is having a right relationship with God. That's what righteousness is. And then secondly, in a practical way, for us who know God, righteousness is living in conformity to God's moral code. It is the practical side of us being right with God. Pastor Tom said it. He doesn't save us to leave us. He saves us to change us. And that change is righteousness being worked out in our lives through the Holy Spirit working in our lives. So, justification. We've we've talked about righteousness. I think we understand that. Now let's talk about justification because it is slightly different in in our our thinking, uh, and that's because it brings us into the imagery of the law court. It is a legal term that is being used. It's the opposite of the term 
condemnation. Chapter 1, 18 through 3.20, condemnation. And this is justification. Both are legal verdicts that the judge pronounces on the accused, whether they are guilty or they are not guilty. They are condemned or they are justified. And it's important for us to understand both what this word means and what it does not mean. Justification may be defined this way, as that act of God whereby he declares righteous the one who believes in Jesus Christ. That's as simple as it can get. It is where God declares a man or woman righteous when they believe in the gospel. Now, George Ladd, a theologian and commentator, suggests this lengthier definition. I think it's really good. The root idea in justification is the declaration of God, the righteous judge, that the man who believes, or we could say the woman who believes in Christ, sinful though he may be, is righteous, is viewed as being righteous, because in Christ he has come into a right relationship with God. You see, that's tying the word righteousness, a right relationship with God, and the declaration, the verdict, uh, not guilty, it brings them together. So, four things that I think are important for us to know, keep in mind about justification. This very important word in, in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings. So, letter A. Do you have this written out, Joel? You don't have these written out? So I'll say them a couple of times. And if you don't get it all written down and you want to get with me afterwards, you're free to do that. So justification does not mean that God sees me as just as if I never sinned. Justification does not mean that God looks at me as though I have never sinned. I'll say that one more time since some of you are writing. Justification does not mean that God sees me as just as if I never sinned. Now, some, in fact, have defined justification that way. They, they you know, we like acronyms and that kind of stuff, that, you know, to remember things. So that is what they do with it. Just, uh, just as if I never said. I don't know exactly how that works, but it's not good. It's inaccurate. In essence, God would simply be playing a mind game with himself. If he would look at me as though I had never sinned. He sees our sin, doesn't he? He sees our sin. But he also sees us who have believed in Christ as righteous because of what Christ has done for us. He doesn't look at me and see that and think, well, he's never sinned. He's a pretty good guy. No, 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 no. He sees me and my sin both before I became a believer and since I've become a believer. What I have done, what I am doing, and what I will do, he sees it. And yet he still sees me righteous because of what Christ has done. So justification is much more than God seeing us as innocent as innocent of sin. That would mean we didn't commit something, right? We didn't commit sin. I'm innocent. You know, little kids, you get, you know, got cookie crumbs on his face and his fingers. Who's in the cookies? Not me. I'm innocent. <laughs> That's like the sinner says, I, I, I'm innocent, God. 
You can't judge me? No, no. I see the cookie crumbs. I see your sin. You know, he doesn't see us as innocent in that way. God doesn't see us that way. He sees us as righteous. Now, this is better. I want you to understand, this is better. Innocence, in essence, would do more than, nothing more than to take us back to the position that Adam and Eve were in before they sinned. The dispensation of innocence. There was no sin. They were innocent. Uh, no, uh, we are in a better position, that of being united with Christ and having his righteousness even though I have sinned and I still sin. So it doesn't mean that God looks at me as just as if I'd never sinned. Letter B, justification does not mean to be made righteous does not mean to be made righteous. It does mean to be declared righteous. And that's a big difference. Justification does not mean to be made righteous. It does mean to be declared righteous. So you need to know this. This is, justification is a declarative act it is a legal term. It's when the, the imagery of the court, like we were last week, where the verdict came down, all are guilty and deserving of God's wrath. Now we're still in the imagery of the court, and the verdict is coming down justified, not guilty because of faith in Christ. But it's a legal declaration, not a change of my person. It's not something that is, to use an old word, rot, W-R-O, G-H-T, you know, not rot in people, but is something that is declared about them, said about them. It does, I'm going to say it in three different ways. It, is, it does not make us upright or righteous, but declares us as being right with God. Big difference. This is an important distinction, and it can be seen in the scripture in multiple places. I'm going to just give you uh, a few examples. In in Job 32 and verse 2, we have Lehu, the son of Barakel, speaking. He's one of those great friends of Job's that is correcting him. And he's from the family of Ram, and it says that he burned with anger. And then it says this, He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself and not God. Now, listen, Job was not making himself righteous. He was not making himself righteous, but he was declaring himself as righteous before man and God. Similarly, we read in Proverbs 17 and verse 15, these words, He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination. Now, again, this is speaking of a declarative act, not actually making someone righteous or condemned. So it's an abomination when a person declares righteous the wicked one, and it's as much of an abomination when the righteous one is declared to be condemned. It's not talking about making them righteous 
or condemn. It's a declarative act. Do you get it? Do you get it? Yeah. Interact with me. That, that would be helpful. One more. It's Psalm 51.4, quoted in, in Romans 3.4. We've already looked at it in, in, earlier in chapter 3. But there again, we read in David's confession of his sin, uh, speaking about his, about his sin and God's response to it, and he cries out in re- repentance to God for cleansing and washing and all of that. And, and David says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your just judgment. Now, again, David was not making God righteous. God is righteous. He cannot be anything else. But what he was doing was declaring that in God's judgment of people for sin, he is righteous. He declared him to be that because he knew that he, in fact, was that. There's a difference. So understanding justification as being made righteous, you know, and, and some people teach that when we're justified, we're made righteous. If you, if you see it that way, it is failed to distinguish between uh, what takes place at the moment that we believe in Christ, we believe in the gospel, and we are declared righteous by God, justified, as compared to what God does through the rest of our lives as Christian, where he makes us righteous through the process of sanctification. That is where God practically sets us apart from sin and unto righteousness. Initially, that happens at the same time as justification. We are set apart from the consequence of our sin, and we're set apart unto God. We become children of God and so on. It, it all happens at that moment. But then sanctification actually continues on daily, Moment by moment, God is working in our lives, and he will complete his work in our lives until the day that Jesus returns, or we go to be with him through death. And then it will all be done, and we'll be set apart from even the presence of sin. So it is a failure to distinguish those, and we must distinguish them, because each one of these theological things are, are huge. They tell us so much of how God is so good to us and the wonderful message of the gospel. Let us see. Justification is not the bestowal of a quality, but the declaration of what has been imputed. Justification is not God giving us a certain quality, but it is him declaring what has been reckoned or credited to us, imputed to us. I'll say that one more time because it's kind of long. So justification is not the bestowal of a quality, but the declaration of what has been imputed. This is like a theological lesson, isn't it? I kind of like it. (laughs) I kind of like it. You might not like it as much, but I really like it. And, and you should like it as much as me. <laughs> so we, we should probably stop for a moment then and understand what imputation is, right? Another theological term. 
Imputation. This, this word imputation means to reckon or to credit to one's account. Is to reckon or to credit to one's account. The, like, maybe the key verse that people will go to to explain this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where it says, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God imputed our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. That is divine imputation on both sides of it. Our sin be imputed to Christ. He never sinned. He didn't have his own sin, but our sin was imputed to him. And his righteousness, we didn't have his righteousness. We, we never could get it, but his righteousness was imputed to us. Praise him. So let's, let me see if I can illustrate this idea a little bit more. Let's say that you have a, a, a difficult few months financially, as a lot of people are since the you know, impact of inflation is hitting um, so many people now. You have a, a few difficult months, and, and when it comes time to pay your bills, you find that you, you can't pay them all, and in fact, you can't pay your gas bill. And by that, I mean like the bill for gas and natural gas in your house. You receive a letter from the gas company saying, you know, you're in default. You haven't paid your bill in a, in a few months, and uh, if, if you don't pay your bill, your gas is going to be shut off. Now, suppose that you have one of your friends, and they hear about your situation, and they go down to the gas company, and they pay your bill, right? They pay your bill. And the gas company, they're going to take that money, that payment from your friend, and they're going to credit it to your account. They're going to impute it to your account. Your debt has been paid, and, and your account shows paid in full, right? And that's what God has done for us through redemption and justification. We had a debt that we could not pay because of our sin. The wages of our sin is death. Right, And we couldn't pay the bill that sin brings. We couldn't stop death from coming. The only way it could be stopped was for that bill to be paid by God. And he did. He paid the, the bill through the death of Christ. And, and when he did that, and when we believed that, then God imputed or credited the righteousness of Christ to our account and then God declared us righteous. Doesn't make us righteous. Doesn't see us just as if we'd never sinned. He declares us to be right with him because Christ paid our bill in full. Okay. The last one. Justification is not a, a change of state, but a change in standing. Justification is not a change of state, but a change of standing. Now, what I mean by that is that when God justifies sinners, he is not declaring bad people to be good. <laughs> He's not saying that they're not sinners after all. They're really good people. No. That would be a change of state. That is not what he does. He's pronouncing them legally righteous free from any liability of the broken law, which everyone has broken, 
right? Because sin is lawlessness. We talked about that last week. And because he himself, in his son, bore the penalty of our law-breaking, he could declare us right with him. Our standing is changed. We're no longer declared to be enemies of God, but sons and daughters of God, children of God. We're no longer in the state of being separated from Christ. We are, in fact, united with Christ. Wow. We're no longer declared to be in the state of being a sinner, as Pastor Tom read in Ephesians 2, and the first part of that, we were by nature children of wrath because we were following the prince of the power of the air and the sons of disobedience. We were sinners through and through. That was our state. We are no longer declared to be sinners. We are declared to be saints. Those that are set apart from the penalty of their sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you know, if you were to ask a group of Christians like this, and, and I would just ask the question without any context of what I've already said. So how, many of you are, how many of you would call yourself a saint? Probably not many people would raise their hands because, they're, you know, what they're thinking, they're thinking like, I don't think I belong on some uh, pane of a window or, you know, a statue or a medallion that someone wears around their neck. You know, if that's what you mean by a saint, I ain't that. Or, you know, I recognize I'm a, I still sin a lot. And I don't think saints do that, do they? So, I, no, I, I wouldn't call myself a saint. I, you know, I cling to that old hymn that says it wrong, by the way. Only a sinner saved by grace. Well, we were sinners and we're saved by grace. But when we were saved by grace, we're no longer a sinner in God's eyes. We're a saint in God's eyes. You, you want proof of that? Read the book of 1 Corinthians the most unsaintly group of Christians that you read about in the, in the Bible, and he calls them all saints in his first opening section. And then he hammers them for their failures and their uh, sinful uh, activities and sinful thinking. So, justification. It doesn't change our state, what we are, but it does change our standing before God. That's awesome, because when I stand before God, I don't want to be viewed by God as a sinner who deserves hell. I want to be viewed as a saint who is welcome into heaven. And that's what justification does for us. Wow, that's all pretty good stuff, isn't it? Okay, i got about 10 minutes to get through point one. I, I, I never intended to get through three points on the back, just so that you know, on the other side of your insert. But since we're going to try to finish this next week, i got to get through one. Nine minutes. Justification is not by works of the law, if you're filling in your insert. Not by works of the law. And with this... In verse 21, Paul returns to, in essence, to the theme of the letter as stated in 1 Corinthians 16 and 17, that the the righteousness of God is revealed in in the gospel, right? Right. Notice the first two words, would you, of verse 21? But now. But now. It marks a great contrast, which is a great transition. 
Is Paul's particular phrase for making a, a transition from a dark and gloomy picture to something absolutely fantastic, wonderful, what God has done. And these words in and of themselves, but now, are not all that significant. But in the context of what he's been writing about condemnation and everyone being guilty and under sin and, and all of that, uh, boy, it is pretty significant what these words introduce. They are tremendously important. But now, so in the first section of Romans, again, remember, Paul painted a dark and dismal picture of mankind's condition. And such darkness and, and despair is, in a sense, you read through that, it's unfathomable. It's so deep. It's, it's beyond our understanding at times. Kind of what you feel when you read things in the newspaper, or see things on TV, or you're on Facebook, or whatever it is, and you think, how can people do that? I mean, that's just so sick. That's so evil, Right? And it's unfathomable to us, and it's universal, is what he says. Everyone is caught up in it. It envelops everyone. All people stand condemned by God and will receive his terrible wrath. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, right here at verse 21, a light comes streaming in to show the way to be right with God. Dark, dismal condemnation. Bright, light, way of salvation. Awesome. And Paul stresses over and over again in Romans and his other epistles that justification, or how to be declared righteous by God, or how to have a right relationship with God, does not come through works of the law. He's already been handling that earlier in chapter 3. The principle of law works is the belief and if a person meets certain conditions, then they'll be right with God. They'll receive God's blessing of righteousness. It teaches that God's blessings, including salvation from sin's penalty, are dependent on certain conditions. Put it in its simplest terms, it teaches the principle of law righteousness, or I would put it in the terms of legalism. Legalism, or the principle of law works, teaches that God will forgive us if we do this or we do that. If we do this or we do that. Better not do anything else, otherwise you're going to get it. Wrath will be coming. But if you do this or you do that, you're going to be right with God. That's the principle of law works. But our text tells us very plainly that justification and God's forgiveness are not a result of law works. Again, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from works of the law. Now, I think you'll understand this. This is very difficult for people to accept. That you're not saved by law works. That you can't be made right with God by meeting certain conditions. That you must be saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. That is difficult for people to accept. You know, every other religion teaches that man's relationship with God, whatever God that is, or non-God even, non-personal God it is, is dependent on what a person does, right? What they do. And practically everything in our lives teaches or verifies the fact that our acceptance and success in life is dependent on what we do or we don't do. 
And because people are self-centered and prideful, it's very difficult for them to accept the fact that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that they can do to merit a right relationship with God. There's nothing, absolutely nothing in them that could attract God's blessing. But all of life teaches the opposite. You know that. You're taught that in school. If you do your work, you get this grade. Now, because they don't want to teach really anymore, they'd say, any grade will do, or let's not give them grades. But yeah, that's what it used to be when I was going through school. You do your work, you get this grade. You don't do your work, you get this grade. A to F, right? Somewhere in between. You get that at work. If you do your job well, you get promoted. You get a raise. If you don't, you might be out the door. It's what you do or you don't do. It's that way in relationships. If you're, you know, you're, it, what you should be in a relationship, then you're going to get honey from your, honey from your special one. And if you don't, you're going to get fire coming your way. Harsh words, maybe a slap to the face, or the silent treatment. Everything in life teaches us this. It can even be that way in the church. It's all dependent on what we do or we don't do. Well, Paul states it plainly again. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, this phrase actually begins with, as some of your English translations may have it, like the NAS I know has it, it actually begins with the words apart from the law. So if I were looking at the NAS or the Legacy Standard Bible, uh, it would say, uh, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that, that's where it belongs if you're looking at the Greek text. It's at the front end. But the point is that in Greek language, you, they place things in a verse, in a sentence, at the beginning of a sentence or at the end of it to highlight it, to emphasize it. Didn't necessarily fit well in the flow of words, but it was put there to say, this is important, pay attention. And that's what Paul's doing here. Pay attention. It is apart from the law. What is? The righteousness of God. He puts stress on the fact that receiving God's righteousness or having a right relationship to him is not connected, not connected to obedience to the law. It is apart from or completely unconnected to keeping some moral code, whether that is the Ten Commandments or some other moral code. And again, you know, people struggle with that because even as believers, once we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, and you know, we didn't, we didn't need works to get saved, and then we end up turning the corner and we think, well, now I've got to do right, I've got to do what's this, and I've got to do that, I've got to keep these conditions, otherwise God will cut off the flow of his blessings, he's going to see me as a bad person, and he may, he may make me lose my job, and, and then I won't be able to pay my gas bill, and you know, it's, it's all of this or that, and uh, a conditional thing. I, God, I made this deal with you. Are you going to keep the deal? God doesn't make a deal with us that way. And we can't make a deal with him that way. Righteousness of God is manifested apart from, unconnected to keeping law, a code of ethics. And, and, and then he says, you know, the, the righteousness of God has been manifested in a different way. 
a different way. And, and, and the way that the verb has been manifest is, is written, emphasizes that God's righteousness re, was revealed at a point in time in the past, but it continues to be manifested in the same way ever since that point of time. Now what he's clearly talking about here is Calvary and the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, through the crucifixion, the righteousness of God was revealed, and the gospel message, as it goes forth, continues to reveal or manifest to sinners how they can be right with God. Happened at the cross, but it keeps on happening. Not like he's dying over and over again, but the truth of his death and what it provides for us does go on and on and on. Paul adds that what he's saying regarding God's righteousness being revealed apart from the law was actually witnessed by the law and prophets. Did you pick that up? It was witnessed by the law and prophets. And what he means by that is, I can show you in the Old Testament that this is true. That what I'm telling you about the righteousness of God not being connected to law works, but instead being through faith, that's in the Old Testament too. That's what he means. The law and the prophets is clearly a reference to the whole Testament. And, and Paul was saying, what I'm saying is not foreign to, to the Old Testament. Jews, pay attention. And, you know, the Gentiles wouldn't really have the clue, but the Jews that he's been arguing with, they would. The Old Testament, hear this well, the Old Testament did not teach that a man could be right with God by keeping the law. It did not, despite what some people say or believe. It was never based on keeping the law. That's how many people think of the Old and New Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, people were saved by keeping the law. In the New Testament, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Actually, that's not correct. Everyone's always been saved by grace through faith. You say, well, yeah, but they didn't have Christ in the Old Testament. Well, that's absolutely true. But consider with me, just for a moment, a couple of passages uh, that show that salvation from sin was graciously provided by God as a gift, not based on keeping a law, okay? I think everyone here would most likely be familiar with the story of Adam and Eve and their sin in Genesis 3. Do you remember how after they disobeyed God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they realized that they were naked, if you're from the south, that's how you'd say it. They were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. And then the Lord came walking in the garden, and they ran away and hid. They hid themselves. And, and God calls out to Adam, and he says, where are you? Like, God didn't know. He knew the tree that he was hiding behind, but where are you, Adam? Adam's response was, well, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And the Lord, <laughs> the Lord asked him, so who told you you were naked? And uh, asked him if he had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After confessing his sin, kind of, sort of, you know, he blamed Eve and even God, the woman God gave him for it. But after confessing his sin, the Lord pronounced a curse on the serpent and executed discipline on Adam and Eve. You're probably familiar with that. I'm going to go through that discipline. But then an interesting thing happens at the end of the chapter. 
Verse 21 says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them, covering their nakedness, both physical and spiritual, because the nakedness was both. They were naked physically, and they were naked and bare, laid open and bare before God in their sin. They were naked. So their own attempt to cover their nakedness before God was just that. It was a cover-up. But it was never sufficient. They needed God to provide a covering. How did that covering come? By way of a sacrifice or two of animals. He made animal skins it must have been a fast, you know, instant tanning and all of that. But he made animal skins to cover their nakedness. Which was, you know, God showing us at least three things in that, in that section. One, when confronted by God, people are faced with the guilt of their sin. Well, that's Romans 1, isn't it? Where it said, uh, no one's going to stand before God. They'll be without excuse when they stand before God. When you are confronted by God, you will see yourself for what you are right? You'll see your sin for what it is. Number two, when confronted by people's sin, God is just and is dealing with them. (laughs) Because God is just. God is righteous. He can't do in punishment or in judgment anything that is unjust. And number three, when people confess their sin, God graciously makes provision for them. He forgives them. Praise him for that. So what's going on there is that the Lord is teaching that you know there is consequences for sin, and and, and in order for uh, people to have their sins covered or forgiven, God has to make a sacrifice. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And it wasn't through their obedience to make the sacrifice that made them right with God. It was faith in the fact that a sacrifice could provide a covering. But look forward to Christ, none the same. There had to be a substitute to atone for sin. God alone could provide the substitute. So, last words. Landing this wonderful first point and today's message. A second passage makes this just as clear. You go to the book of Isaiah, you don't need to turn there now, but you probably know Isaiah was one of the prophets who preached against the sins of the people, particularly of Judah. And he's constantly hammering them. And they're responding throughout the book saying, yeah, but we're, we're keeping these fasts and we're doing these sacrifices. Aren't we right with God? Where is God anyway? Is he abandoned? We're doing what's right. And Isaiah's hammering them. You're not doing what's right. You're doing it with the wrong heart and all of that. And then we come to Isaiah 53. And it tells us that God sent his suffering servant to justify the many by bearing their iniquities, right? The suffering servant would provide a right relationship with God because he bore the iniquities, the sin of people. No amount of law-keeping could ever take away the guilt of sinful Israel. The only way they could be justified, made right with God... Uh, was by God bruising or crushing his own son, is how he puts it. And of course, we know that the suffering servant is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament agree. No one can be justified by God 
through the principle of law works. In other words, legalism just doesn't work. It'll never work. It never was intended to work. It was never intended by God that we would believe that we could make a deal with him, that if we'd do certain things, he would have to respond a certain way to us. Let us who know the Lord be thankful. Be thankful that what we were is no more. The new has come, right? The old has passed away, the new has come. And it has come to us by means of God's declaration about us. When we put our faith in Christ, he declares us as right before him. He gives us a right relationship with him through what Jesus Christ has done. He will continue to change us, but that's not what he did. He absolutely changed our standing the moment that we believed. You should rejoice in the fact that you're not a sinner. You're a saint if you're trusting in Christ. It's like, yeah, but I don't, I don't really feel that because I don't live like I am. Well, start living like what you are. If you believed in Christ, he sees you as set apart from sin and set unto him his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness. Be what you are in Christ. And that is right with God. And give thanks. Lord, we are thankful for this portion of Scripture. How insightful of the Apostle Paul to give us these words that explain in detail the marvelous gift of salvation. We're just kind of scratching away at the surface so far, but as we continue to go through this book together, open up our minds to see it all so that we might glorify you all the more. That we might uh, exalt the Lord all the more. And declare you for who you are. Good and gracious God. We praise you. And we do so in Christ's great name. And Lord we thank you for the food we're going to eat. Your kind provision for us to take care of our physical needs. So let our conversation around that meal bring you glory also. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.